Hello, and welcome to Creative Banter, a creativity and philosophy-focused podcast where anything goes. I'm your host, Cody Schultz. Joining me is the one and only Ben Horn. After explaining a bit about why I had to cancel my September trip to Acadia, which I should have been leaving for this upcoming Sunday already, we move the conversation to something a bit more important in the long run, paper choice. This ties sweetly into what we were talking about in episode 16, environmental impact. Clearly, that episode has made an impact on my own thinking. And while speaking on paper choice, the conversation makes a minor shift toward ebooks versus zines, as Ben and I discuss future projects we are currently working on. Let's dive right into it, shall we? first class for the fall semester on Tuesday. Already? Yeah. Wow. And uh, at least with these, it's it's three courses. One's in person, two are online, and they're all 15-week courses, so it's not too... It's not as rushed through as what the, sum, the summer courses were and what the winter courses... That's course, true, because those are usually pretty condensed. Yeah. I mean, the summer courses were five weeks. So now I get three times as long, but on Tuesday I was in class and we were going over and it's a three hour night class, which, you know, it drags, but yeah, for sure. We were going over the syllabus and everything. And I started to realize, I'm like, this is going to be quite a bit of work. Like it's manageable, but it's one of those deals of. I've got to start thinking of Acadia. Yeah, when's when's that trip coming up? Well, it was gonna be I was gonna be there from the 18th to the 23rd, so like the full the last second to last week of September, that full week, which would have meant that I would um, not be able to go to one of the classes at night. Hmm. And needless to say, I ended up canceling it. So yet another one of my trips that I had to push off because of classwork, ah. which is such a bummer. But yeah. I, the more that I was, I was sitting there and I was thinking of it, I'm like, there are these assignments that we have to do that are um, you read a text and then because it's all methods of teaching. So you read the text and then you have to make some kind of like assignment and everything and then teach what you learned to the class almost. Hmm. And I think it's the week before I would have left or the week after somewhere around that it straddled it, that I would have had to do this. Ah, uh, and I'm just, I'm, yeah, that's not going to work out. No, well. the more that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, the last thing I want is even if I get ahead and say this class, I still have two others to worry about. And the last thing I want is to be sitting in Acadia working on my laptop for most of the day. Oh, no. <laughs> like, no, that's, that would not be good. I mean, it, it would be beautiful, it'd be scenic, but, but yeah, I, it would not, be ruined yeah. by having to do the work. Not there. at all the purpose of the trip. So yeah. needless to say, I got my money back from that, all but like $10 I think they kept because of canceling a reservation, whatever. Um, 
Now, are you going to be able to like reschedule that at some point or what, what's your plans for that? I'm honestly just going to have to push it off until I'm done with this master's program. Um, ah. the, it wouldn't be so bad, like doing a four day trip up there, condensing the trip, except I'm 10 hours away. So now I only have two days up there and it's just kind of, yeah. it's too quick of a turnaround. I can't really get into the whole thing of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, it sucks, but it's also, it's for the better. I got to focus on the schoolwork more than a trip for primarily my own enjoyment. You know what I mean? So yeah, I figure too, I can always do like a, a short four day trip down to like Shenandoah if I can find a campsite that works for my days. Um, because that's only like four or five hours away from me. And there's a, there's Whoa. a ton of other, uh, places right around me that i can do like overnight trips and everything too that i haven't explored yeah. yet or stayed there for so i'll get my camping fix in but yeah but yeah what, what would you say is like the the minimum amount of time that you would want to spend at a location if you do have like that 10 hour drive a week a week yeah that's about that sounds about that sounds about right that's that's like i'm kind of along the same lines for that as well yeah i mean any um, vacation that i try to plan out where I'm traveling for a decent distance. I want at least a week there just because I want to have one day for travel or two days on either end for travel and then five in between where I can have that time to really get into the, the movement, so to speak. So, yeah, because otherwise you're just you're rushing around and especially with large format, you just nah, there's there's no point to it. Yeah, yeah, you need to have the time to kind of get settled in and to explore. Um, I, I just recently spent uh, three days up at the White Mountains in Central California, and it's where the the bristlecone pines are. And and I know I've talked about this in the past here on the podcast in terms of what I call the first day funk, where the first day I get there, I darn near have a panic attack, and I'm still trying to figure out exactly what the cause of it is. Um, I, I suspect it's just being separated from my routine at home and just kind of getting plunged into a new environment all of a sudden, even though it's an environment that, that I like. Um, but, you know, I, I went up there on, on Saturday and, and that Saturday, you know, I got in at like about eh, like 11 o'clock in the morning and like for the whole rest of the day, man, it was just like, trying to distract myself and uh, try to find, you know, some way of kind of like transitioning that time to being in the field. But the second two days were just fine. You know, by the time I woke up that on, on Sunday morning, everything was fine. Monday, everything was fine. But, but it's a, it's a weird thing. Do you, do you ever have anything like that at all? Not a ton. I think we talked about it before in a previous episode yeah. about that whole thing. Um, yeah, it's it's always weird. Like, I think the one trip you had mentioned, um, where you had almost gotten that before even going on the trip. I think that was your spring yeah. trip. It, it was on the spring backpacking trip where I had that feeling like the day before I left, and but when I got there, everything was fine, and and I've been trying to kind of figure out like troubleshoot it, try to figure out like what's what's going on. And so I figured on this trip, I'm like, I have zero pressure whatsoever when it comes to shooting photos. Like I'm, I'm basically pretty good for the year at this point. 
and I wasn't doing any video. So there's no pressure from video. There's no pressure from photos. In the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm just going to go to an area I love, see some trees, and then wham, I get hit by this thing again. Um, so the only thing I could think is, is just being separated from that routine. But it still doesn't explain why when I went on that spring trip that I had it before I left. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have it when I was there. Yeah, I mean, most of mine, I when I, the kind of experiences that I get are before the trips. Almost all the time yeah. they're before where I'm just kind of like, and I guess it's just an anxiety of kind of like what you said, getting away from whatever kind of routine you have, but also going for me, at least every time it's a new place or at least close to it, it's a new place. So yeah, that would, that would be tough for me for sure. Yeah. So it's like, I have no idea what to expect and I don't know the environment as well as I would like to and that kind of thing. So I think that's where yeah. most of mine stems from, but. Yeah, and, and this time, knowing how the scent of smell and also how sounds are, are very powerful, um, I, I was started seeking out some of these other uh, senses just to try to kind of uh, maybe open myself up to my surroundings a little bit more. So I, I was going to these bristlecone pines and just like sniffing <laughs> the pine needles. I'm like, oh, that smells good. Still feel like I'm dying inside, but it <laughs> smells so good. Great. So now we have, you know, an, just like taking them. Now we have our uh, title for this episode already. Smelling trees, part two. <laughs> yeah. Or sniffing, yes. sniffing pines. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> and it, that I would just like listen to the sound of the wind and sit down and relax and all that. And and I, I tried listening to some music, thinking like, oh, maybe if I listen to some like songs I really like. And just like, you know, 10 seconds into it, I'm like, nope, making it worse. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's so bizarre. The, the mind um, and, like in and of itself is just bizarre how it works. It's yeah. Scary sometimes. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying, I'm still trying to figure all that out and try to figure out how to do some sort of little hack for that. But, and the, the other thing too, is the area where I went to, it's at very high elevation. I mean, I was over 11,000 foot elevation. And so you also have the natural, uh, physical, sensations of being up that high and you know a little bit less oxygen how does that affect your hiking uh it slows you down it it you know there's some people that acclimate to that pretty well um i do better with it now than my first trip to the white mountains my first trip was almost exactly 10 years ago um it was in august of 2012 and i knew in advance that you know there'd be less oxygen it would be a bit more difficult to walk, but then you start like walking up this, just a very mild slope. And you're like, I am dying. This is <laughs> like, how does this, you know? And then you realize, oh, okay, it's high elevation. And then you start, you know, slowing down and everything's fine. But I was walking on some of those same slopes on this trip and I was more acclimated to, I think I was just a little bit more accustomed to it. Yeah. Um, I felt that during but, Acadia for the first. Oh Yeah. Well, just because like... That's right, because you said it's pretty... Yeah. There's some, some elevations there. Yeah, you can get up to... I don't think it's quite as as high as what you're talking about, but still like 5,000 5, foot elevations when you're compared to yeah. maybe 1,000 foot elevations, if that, in Pennsylvania. I'm not sure what we're at for most of our hikes, but yeah, it can't be that much more than 1,000, 2,000 feet. But yeah, that I definitely feel that that slows you down quite a bit I can imagine yeah. 
and then the um, the previous time I went to the White Mountains was back in 2020, and that was a year when there were some really bad wildfires out here in the West, and uh, and at at the elevation of the mountains I was at, it was basically above the smoke layer. Um, but that year I camped at almost 12,000 foot elevation, and I woke up feeling really bad the next morning. It was just from uh, a very very mild altitude sickness. Um, so it just is something where you're just like, something's wrong. Yeah. Like I, I don't like this feeling. Something's not right. I experienced something um, again, not quite altitude sickness, but, um, I could imagine it being quite similar, like going, we were out in Western PA and camping and we had to pitch the tent mm-hmm. on a downward grade, a very slight downward grade that it wasn't really noticeable. Until you woke up the next morning and realized that your head is lower than your feet are so oh. blood's rushing down to your head and yeah i think we were there for four days and it took us two nights to realize it so then you're like you're hiking afterwards and all of that after you wake up and yeah not the uh not the best trip that's weird i i wouldn't have i wouldn't have thought that that would have an impact like that. I mean, it, I guess it makes sense. Well, I mean, just like but lay it's, down, it's something I hadn't considered. Lay down on your bed and hang your head uh, off the bed for <laughs> like fi- even fifteen minutes, and you're going to start to feel effects that are yeah. It, it's weird. It's weird. So how how did that manifest itself? How 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 did it affect you? It didn't affect me as bad as it affected my girlfriend. Um, but it was still just like almost lightheadedness kind of just you just felt off Mm. like for a while as the blood like readjusted recirculated um like headache kind of grogginess i guess you could Hmm. call it it was just sounds like the sort of thing where you just feel like something's off but you're like what is it yeah (laughs) yeah what's going on here yeah and then all of a sudden your your brain just jumps to like the worst case you know scenarios like up definitely a brain tumor just (laughs) It's the way it's the way it always yep. works. And then you Google it and they're uh, like, Yup, you got a brain tumor. You have got brain all cancer the symptoms. and a tumor. <laughs> You're going to die. Like, oh, man. Yeah. Um <laughs> But yeah, so so this year, uh I did, I shot some black and white film for the first time. Nice. Very um, good. I have no clue how it turns out because I have not developed it yet, but um maybe this coming week I'll do that. Uh, also shot some slide film. I picked it up at the lab today looked okay. I haven't really looked at it too close to see. Um, but it was just kind of like experimenting and getting to know the place and uh, becoming more familiar with everything. So it'll be it'll be interesting how that all works out. Um, but then on Monday evening, my, my last evening there, it was kind of windy. I had given up on shooting any photos that evening because it just would have been fighting the wind. Um, so there's this big hill. I'm like, I'm going to go climb that hill. And I'm going to see if I can run up it just because I'm kind of crazy like that. And uh, so it was, it was a pretty good workout. And then by the time I uh, got back to my truck, it was probably about 4.30. So it's getting a little later in the day. I hop in my forerunner, put the key in the ignition, turn it, and absolutely nothing happens. Um, so I'm, I'm at probably about 11,500 feet elevation or so. And no radio turns on, no nothing. Just a check engine light and a battery uh, light. Very good. 
So I had as dead of a battery as one can possibly have. Um, but at the very moment that that happened, and I'm kind of in this moonscaped area above the tree line, I see this dust cloud heading towards me, and it was the uh, it was the F-150 heading towards me. And the guy, he there's two research stations up there, and he was kind of going between the two of them. He was working um, at them. And so, you know, I grabbed my jumper cables, we hooked it up, and after about five minutes of being hooked to this running truck, finally I was able to start my car. So um, you were really so dead. So it was, it was a very dead battery. And I have one of those uh, lithium battery jumper boxes, but it's an older one. And I know from past experience that unless my battery level is just low enough to not start, it wouldn't have the cranking power. Right. Um, so I was very, very happy to see that other vehicle heading my way. Um, and then I drove down to lower elevation. My, my thought was go down to the campground. I can you know spend the night there. Maybe if I, if I had to get another jump in the morning, then I can head home the next day. Um, but when I was airing my tires back up and I, and my engine's running, I parked in the parking lot and I was airing my tires back up with my portable compressor. Um, I noticed that one of my battery terminals was a little bit loose. Okay. So all those bumpy roads had loosened one of my battery terminals. Uh, it was only draining. It wasn't getting any charge at all. And also the battery was five years old. So it was kind of on its last legs anyways. So replaced the battery when I got home and got a, uh, a NOCO uh, lithium jumper box for future instances, and it's supposed to be able to get the car going even if the battery's completely dead. But, uh, but yeah, that was that was my adventure, um, and uh, thankfully it all worked out in the end. I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you made it back to the house clearly. So yeah, unless you're somehow recording in your back of your truck. Yeah, <laughs> still stranded up there. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how the black and white film works out. It'll be interesting to see how the color film works out once I scan it. Um, but it was just a, just a fun little experience getting out there and uh, enjoying some nice weather uh, before this, this crazy heat wave settles. And not that it'd be hot up there, but it was definitely nice to think about wearing a puffy jacket on top of a mountain right now when it's, you know, 100, 100 degrees back home. Yeah, yeah. Speaking on that and going back to our episode... Uh, I guess it would be two weeks ago from when this is going to come out. Um, mm -hmm. The environmental impact. I was thinking about that again. And yeah, so I'm, I think I mentioned it on here before. I'm doing a little series that's kind of uh, hidden away from public view for right now, but on these Coke machines that are outside different buildings and stuff that I find on my travels. And it's interesting. When I was up in the mountains, this, the other weekend, my dad and I were riding our motorcycles around, and we came across one that is um, someone back in 2019 had restored this little garage into a, um, a gas station. It's all replicated, so it's not actually functioning, but it looks like one of those old-timey uh, golf gas stations. It's really cool. It's huh. looks pristine, and when we had passed by it, I had my four by five in the saddlebags and everything, but um, I hadn't noticed the Coke machine. My dad, however, did, but I couldn't really communicate with him that well and didn't. We were on our way to somewhere else anyway, so I ended up going back to this place and making a photograph of it. 
Mm -hmm. So then just because I'm going up this weekend, I wanted to develop that film pretty quick and make sure that everything worked out how it should in case I had to go back to any of these spots for this project. And Mm -hmm. once I developed this one in particular, immediately I knew that it was going to be one that gets that gets shown, that goes into whatever kind of project this ends up culminating into. And so I wanted to print it, and I ran out of my typical paper, which is Hannah Mule's Photorag 308 GSM. But I had the a little sample pack of their natural line, which has um, bamboo paper and two other types. I can't remember what they are, but the bamboo paper was the closest or would get me to the closest that photo rag would. So I printed on that and it has a little bit of a yellow tint to it. Mm-hmm. But other than look that, it looks pretty good. So I'm curious to see if I'll stick with bamboo. I might have to try it out a little bit more, but that led me to the thinking of the environment and the paper choices that, or the papers that we choose to use and how that can change into something more sustainable, like bamboo. Yeah. Yeah. Was is it a kind of a, a matte finish paper? Yeah. Interesting. Um, the the camera store I used to work at, we we carried Hanamule paper, and I do remember seeing a sample of the bamboo paper. And I do remember it having a little bit more warmth than some of the other papers, and. And I also remember that there were some other ones. I don't know if it was like an agave paper or or there's there's something like that. I just pulled it up. So with this sample pack, you get two sheets each. They're all 290 GSM, which is quite heavy of a paper, which I like. Um, And it's bamboo, agave, and then hemp. Interesting. And I didn't do... Are any of them more white than the others? Um... I'm not positive. I don't have the paper in front of me right now. I just have what B&H's listing uh, okay. tells me. Yeah, um, so it's, it's hard, hard to see the the specifics there. Yeah, but I mean, um, I, I warm tone at least slightly all of my photographs now anyway. So mm-hmm. that just helps to exaggerate that a touch more using this, what's already like a, a warm toned paper almost. Um, yeah. But then I was on YouTube yeah. earlier today. And there's an artist that I follow. Um, I forget what his name is, but I'll put the link in the show notes to his page. Um, and he had just done a YouTube shorts or whatever on uh, stone paper, like paper stone made paper. from stone, which he's hmm. a more of a traditional artist. He uses gouache a lot. Um, and he was, so I'm not sure what like the, what this could mean for, photographic paper in the future though i'm sure there's people working on it if it's already existing for traditional artists um did, did they show what the what the paper looks like and kind of the the tactile sense of it in the in the video he did a um did a couple of different tests with um i think he did a pencil drawing one with gouache um i think one with pen and then he did like a bunch of tests and um, of just like seeing how each medium reacted to the paper. And when it came to like ink, gouache, watercolor, anything that's like water based, 
it kind of just it didn't stick as well because the paper itself is kind of like water wicking he even showed in the very beginning that you can just like pour water on it and it just kind of wicks away almost like it's a plastic coating that's on it so which makes me wonder if you could manipulate that to use like photographic inks or if it would just be for like the pencil or charcoal kind of drawings um yeah because you think you would have to have some sort of i don't know like coating or something so that would make it friendly for for an inkjet did it have like the the thickness of like a fine art sort of paper that like from Hanamule that we're more accustomed to or or do you have a, a feeling for that at all i'm not positive uh on like the thickness aspect of it um like I said, I'll, I'll link the exact video down below, too, for those listening. Yeah, um, that'll be interesting to check out. But it was just, it was so weird when, it, as soon as he said that it was made of stone, I'm like, how does that even work? Yeah. Yeah, that that's very fascinating. I mean, I, I get to wonder if it's some sort of, like, because there, there's some stones that are a bit more, like, fibrous in a way. Um uh, so that yeah, so I'm, I'm I'm definitely very curious about that and how they can actually make that into a paper. Now the um, like the photoreg barita paper that I use, it has from what I understand kind of like a, a clay type coating, which is the the barita part of it, um, which I guess technically is kind of like stone i don't know <laughs> it's you know it's it's not a tree uh it's you know a mineral from the earth that, that makes it so it, it does make me wonder when it comes to a stone paper like what binds it together what makes it flexible um, but that is very fascinating and, and it does definitely between that and the the bamboo paper the agave paper the hemp paper um, it's it's fascinating that there are some options out there that are you know more more renewable in terms of you know compared to just you know pulp from a tree that has takes longer to to create yeah i mean the stone paper really just makes me think of stone tablets kind of going like full circle going back yeah. to how we yeah, used to do everything <laughs> just yeah. now you can print paper on it or print yeah print paper on it print photographs on it yeah I, and, and actually thinking about it now um Quite a while ago, probably 10 years ago, I did buy, I don't think the agave paper existed back then. I think that's a pretty new one. I think the hemp paper is a pretty new one too, but I did buy a small pack of the bamboo paper. And at the time I bought it to make some uh, business cards out of, okay. just because it had a really nice tactile feel where I can hand it to someone and then they could, you know, they, you watch them kind of like roll it over in their hand and kind of touch it. And so it was something that they weren't just going to throw away right away. They just wait until, you know, there's a trash can out of view, then they just throw yeah, it away then. Of but, That's um, why I don't do business yeah, cards anymore. Exactly. Um, but I do remember it having a very nice tactile feel to it, kind of velvety on one side. Um, I do remember it having a slight warm tone. And the business cards I was printing at the time had color on them, and, and they looked fine. But I think my thought when I saw that paper was that this, is, this would do really well for black and white especially. Um, but it'd be interesting to see uh, color photography printed on there as well to see how it does. Um, I, I do prefer the more glossy base paper because I can get more of the look of the transparency. But I think especially for black and white, some of those matte, pa- matte papers do really, really well. 
Cole Thompson at one point when I was talking to him about printing choices, like with paper and all of that, um, he made a good point that he had uh, been passed on to from other photographers and all of that, that in all reality, when you frame a paper, when you frame your print, you're not going to really notice the difference between a glossy paper versus uh, matte paper when it's behind glass. Not, I don't. Which, which is true, though. Also, you can get more richness of dark tone on more of a glossy base paper than a matte paper. Um, you get more of the jet black tones. Not that every photo needs it, but there's some some photos I think that benefit from having that richer See, contrast. I'll disagree with you there, and strictly beca- so? strictly because of Cole, because. I mentioned the same thing to him that I was struggling to get these rich, pure blacks in my prints. And if you're not familiar with Cole's work, um, it's very, very dark, very black, heavy work to the point where Brooks Jensen, when he was working with Cole for a lens work monograph, mm-hmm. he was struggling to print Cole's work because of how black and how contrasty it is. Yeah. Uh, Cole actually sent me a, I think it's like six by nine print or something like that. And I still have, it's one of the few business cards that I kept because on his card that he sent with it, he just signed off Cody. How's my blacks? Because it is, <laughs> this print is black. I'll, yeah. I'll link the, uh, the exact image that he had sent me a print of. And this is on Hanna Mule's photo rag 308. So it is a matte paper and the yeah it's um very dense blacks so i think if you know how to print well with a matte paper you can do very well with it but i think it is more difficult to to get those kind of that rich tonality throughout and does he do black and white exclusively he does yeah i i wonder if it's more of a black and white thing because my experience is that when i look at a color image that's printed on matte paper you the colors go a little bit more pastel and and i guess i think that's probably more so the dark tone i'm referring to not in terms of just like a big mass of of black um but more so like the 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 micro contrast in terms of you know you have a tree for example that has a little bit of you know shadowing on one side where it's it's not in shadow maybe it's in reflected light but there's some darker areas there Mm -hmm. but you pick up more of a micro contrast in those areas that more so mimics the experience of looking at a transparency on the light table. Um, and and, and I can of, see how you kind of get that with, um, if you're comparing silver gelatin to platinum palladium as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, even like a, a platinum print has, I could compare that to like a print on a matte paper versus a print on a glossy being silver. Um, because the platinum tonalities are stretched out more yeah. than what the silver gelatin are. And I kind of see that having some kind of substance there in terms of what we're talking about here. Yeah. And I can also see how for a black and white image, the blacks on a more glossy paper might be too much in a way where it disrupts some of the... Uh, tonality, the more subtle tonality, uh, kind of before it gets to the really dark areas. 
Um, I can see how on a matte paper it might have more of a softer, not not in terms of like not being sharp, but a more pleasing dark tone, a more pleasing rich contrast. Right. Um, but but yeah, I, I I do wonder if if a person were printing a color image uh, with some rich dark tone versus a black and white image with some rich dark tone, how it would compare? Because I think it. I think the matte papers also affect the colors a bit. At least that's been my experience where they lack a certain richness to them. Um, they'll still be, look beautiful. Yeah, I can see it being more of like the, your own, how your eye perceives it more so than the paper itself losing tonality. But I don't know. I'm not, I don't mess with color. I don't touch it because I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was actually, so I bought a, um, Bought a new camera. Oh, wow. Okay. So I'd like to know more about this. <laughs> <laughs> I was on eBay and we had talked before about my wanting a um, something for like on the bike to like document travels and that kind of thing. Something that's a lot easier to just kind of travel around with than what a four by five is. Um, yeah. And so I settled on an Mamiya rb67 pro sd which is okay. the last version of the rb67s before the rz67 fully took over the lineup mm -hmm. um, it's fully mechanical camera which was made production began in 1990s for this the pro sd model those things are a tank too yes um i wanted to get another pentax 67 because god i miss that camera um with the 105 yeah. 2.4 Takamar, that was a beautiful setup, and I regret selling it every single day. Um, but you look at the prices of those, and you're talking like $1,500, $1,600 with the 105. I'm like, I can't, uh, yeah. I can't afford that right now. So I picked up this RB67, um, and I figured, okay, as a way to kind of maybe pay this off a little bit, a couple of years ago, I had done uh, family portraits for like the holiday season kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, I could do that. I don't mind doing that again. Like use, use the camera to pay off the camera kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I was looking and I'm like, well, most people are going to want color. And that's all right. I can develop C41 at home. That's no big deal. And so I'm <laughs> trying to figure out how much I want to charge for these portrait sessions. I'm like, the last time that I did it, I was like at $150 for like an hour, hour and a half session. Um, and I'm like, well, if I do that and I check the prices of Portra 400, because if you have a medium format camera and you're not shooting Portra, you're not a photographer, apparently. Oh, clearly no, no definitely <laughs> not. That's, that's what YouTube tells us. Yes, yes. Uh, and I was like, I think at the time when I looked on B&H, it was like $55, $50 for five for a five pack of Portra 400. Mm -hmm. I looked again today and it's $65 for a five pack. Oh, wow. I'm like, okay. So I guess I got to yeah, up my yeah. prices a little bit for these portrait sessions to, yeah. to justify that if people want color kind of thing. But that, that, that alone is why I don't shoot color. That's the a it huge, is very factor. expensive. I, I just, I'm, I'm completely used to the price of eight by 10 film. For me, it's completely normal because the box of film lasts a long time. It's, 
it's around $400 for 20 sheets, which sounds absurd, but you get used to it. But then I'll look and the other day I saw, I think I was searching B&H to see if they had more uh, Provia 8x10 in stock. And, and I just searched for, you know, Fuji Provia. And I think one of the first one that came up was 35 millimeter film. I think it was like 25 bucks or something like that for a roll. It, it was, I, I, don't, I don't know what I, I don't know exactly what it was, but I just remember looking at it going, wow, that's, that's, that's crazy. Cause I just, that's a lot. With the 35 mil that I just bought was Oford HP5, and I paid $25 for three rolls, which I thought was crazy. Yeah. But, yeah, that's... Uh, I don't know. you got to go black and white a lot sooner than what you are, Ben. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> you got to save that. Yeah. So it, it'll definitely, uh, definitely go a lot further. Now, when it comes to doing the portraits... Uh, is is it going to be just uh, like how how are you going to plan on getting getting the word out that you that you're that that's the service that you're offering now? Is it going to be through any any sort of local? I don't know. I, I, I don't even know how one would go about doing that. Yeah, I'm just basing it solely off of the fact that I only need five six portrait sessions, so I'm literally just going to have my mom on her Facebook account just be like ah, hey yes just like she had years ago when i got one or two sessions in or whatever it was um do the same kind of thing of hey my son's doing the portrait sessions on film or whatever for the holidays if you're interested color or black and white kind of deal here's his info to contact him and just very very low key because it ultimately it's not something that i'm really interested in doing long term or anything yeah um i've always loved doing portrait work but landscapes and the woods will always be my home so yeah I'm, i want to keep it that way as much as i can but just enough i want to do just enough to pay off this camera and maybe a little bit more whatever comes my way and the nice thing is that i'm putting it out there i think like a month two months earlier than i had years ago so Hopefully, I'll get a few more in before people stop with it with the holidays and such, but we'll see what yeah. happens. It'll, It'll be, be interesting something. to see what kind of demographic that brings in, because I would think that people would be more excited about having their portrait taken on film is going to be a younger demographic. But it also depends on, I guess, the connections of anyone's happened, you know, in need of having photos taken for the holidays and such. But I would think that you know, if a person's going to be getting kind of excited about it, it's probably going to be a little bit of a, you know, younger person who is uh, just kind of has that nostalgia over over film and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the nice thing, too, with this, the RB67, the name comes from rotating back, which means oh, yeah. that the film back can rotate uh, horizontally or portrait orientation without actually moving the camera any. Because these were built, the reason they're built like tanks is because they were built for the studio work. They were never really meant to be handheld walk-around cameras. Yeah. They're meant to be plopped on a tripod, and they stay in that place. And that's why they did the rotating back, so it's very easy, and you don't lose your um, lose your composition when you rotate yeah. it. Which I think is going to be great for doing portraits like this, because, especially because I only have a waist-level viewfinder with it, and that would be really awkward to kind of hold it up to the side and then everything changes with it being mirrored. It'd just be weird, but 
So when they went to the RZ, do you, do you know if the Z me- means anything no. other than just let's use a different letter? Literally just that. It yeah. doesn't doesn't <laughs> so have like is it any... rotating Zach? Is it? Yeah. You know? I I was, <laughs> you know, shower thoughts. I was in the shower thinking about that. I'm like, all right, RB rotating back makes sense. RZ what what why yeah what <laughs> like just <laughs> Z because Z words Z because it was the last one that they ever did. Like last camera that they ever really made, I think the Mamiya yeah. Seven Two came out in was it 2012? I'm not sure. I could I could be completely wrong on when the Mamiya Seven was, but I don't remember when Mamiya kind of just completely shut down as a thing. Yeah. But I I wouldn't have minded it getting the RZ because they have a uh, Nick Carver has one. It's a tilt shift adapter for certain lenses uh, that only works for the RZ. But that's a fully electronic camera. Your battery, oh, okay. your battery dies. Camera's done. Yeah, like, it's literally an anchor at that point. Yes, it's a very heavy, <laughs> heavy. It's thing a very in effective anchor. Yes. Yeah. So I figured with the RB, it's a little bit older, but at the same time, no electronics with it. So that's cool. I, I'd much rather have that. So. Well, that's cool. Be cool to see how how that all works out. Um, when I was. Uh, when I was up in the the White Mountains um, and just trying to kill time between sniffing trees and, and such, <laughs> uh, I was I was listening to uh, Jeffrey Sidoris's one of his most recent podcasts, and it's the one that he's uh, him and uh, Sean Tucker do, and um, they're talking about zines and they're talking about uh, that as a format for some various projects that both of them were looking to do. Um, Jeffrey for some painting stuff, Sean for some photography stuff. Yep. And it, it got me thinking a little bit. I know that that format has been used. It's been very popular for like, you know, skateboard photographers and, and all sorts of stuff along those lines. Um, but I haven't seen it used too much by landscape photographers. And since when I went on this trip, this was a non-video trip. And so if I have any photos that come from it, that's cool. But I just didn't really want to do video for such a short trip. But when I was up there, I was before listening to the podcast, I was thinking, you know, maybe I should just do like a blog entry. If I get some photos I really like from this trip, maybe I'll just do a good old fashioned blog entry. Uh, But then when I listened to that conversation with Jeffrey and Sean, I started considering, you know, maybe there's a good way of utilizing the the zine format for something that allows me to to show the work that's maybe a little bit more experimental in a different presentation, a little bit of a less polished, uh, less permanent sort of presentation. And so I came up with an idea where perhaps on these non-video trips I go on, there's these short trips. What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take along kind of a nice notepad and after shooting a photo, um, I'll just go there and I'll just kind of like write my thoughts down on one page of that notepad. Maybe the things leading up to shooting that image, um, just describing the, the moment I was shooting it, and just whatever is on my mind and just write it with decent handwriting on there and then I'll have the photo. But I was thinking about how it would make a very interesting presentation if I just take that 
handwritten sheet. I scan it in. Yeah. And I have that on the left page. And then on the right page is the photo, perhaps with the the border uh, the uh, from the large format film still around it, where it, it looks as though you just you know placed it right down on the light box. And I was thinking about how that might be an interesting way of telling the story of the trips in a less formal way, but also a kind of a more personal and more tangible way. And so that's, that's something I'm, I'm really thinking about doing on, on some of these trips. It's funny that you say that because I was thinking with this new camera that's coming in and it was supposed to be Mm -hmm. here today, which is always irritating when things don't show up like they're supposed to. (laughs) Um, But I was, I was trying to justify spending the money for it because it's it's a lot of money to spend on a camera that ultimately is just it's not going to see as much of use as what the four by five will it just yeah won't but then i was thinking and because i'm going back to uh, in-person classes once a week there's a lot of farmland around kutztown and back when i had the pentax 67 i was doing a lot of um a lot of farmland photographs, that kind of thing. And I was trying to build mm-hmm. up to a, a book or what would have become a book. So I was thinking, oh, okay, I can do something like that. And then I was watching a video from Matt Day mm-hmm. uh, just the other day. And um, he was going through some black and white uh, coffee table books that he had collected. And one was by uh, Tim Carpenter. It's called... Mm-hmm. Uh, Christmas Day, Bucks Pond Road. And this one is, it's his second book. And in it, he takes a two-hour walk and ends up shooting something like 56 photographs through this two-hour walk. Mm-hmm. And it became this book. And I was thinking, that's an interesting concept of just doing kind of like what you said, kind of like whether they're zines or... I was thinking more along the lines of ebooks, especially because yeah. both the environmental impact, but also a lot goes into making a zine. Even yeah, it's not to the same degree as making a book, but there's still paper choices and what company you're going to use and all of that that goes into it, which is a whole other discussion. But I was thinking, well, I can use this camera for it. I can do a short little ebook that's. Um, a single walk, one roll. So 10 photographs of a walk in the park nearby me. And then I was thinking a little bit more. I'm like, oh, well, I'll have it for this weekend. And I'm up in the mountain house for three days for this upcoming weekend. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I'm just going to take that idea that Tim Carpenter had and apply it to this cabin and walk around with, say, three, four, five rolls of film and see what comes along just from a single walking the whole property and see what happens there and then make that into an ebook. So it's interesting that you and I recently have been kind of like on the same, same page with that. With yeah. That creation. Um, but I, I do think there's, I do think I like the idea of an ebook a little bit more than an actual zine. It's it's definitely easier 
from the standpoint that you don't have to mess with shipping things out and all the logistics of creating it, um, you know, versus the, the ebook, which, you know, one can do completely on their own. Um, I use InDesign to create the ones um, on my website, and I have another one that I'm working on as well. And they still take a lot of work to put together, but once they're together, you know, that's that. But like, there is something pretty nice about having that specific level of control over how everything is displayed, how everything's set up, the text, everything else. Not to interrupt you um, for a minute here, Ben, but for those listening, um, Affinity Publisher is what I use for my stuff that I've been working on. I think Sarah Marino for the works e-books? on it. For ebooks, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I got mine on sale for like $25. In case you don't want to give the horrible company of Adobe more money than <laughs> they, in case you don't want to spend $50 a month on a subscription or whatever it is for stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. InDesign is not is not cheap, but I also, uh, I have it because my wife works in the design industry. Right. So I have her, um, I have her account. <laughs> yes. For those who aren't so privileged, Affinity Publisher works wonders. Um, is, is it a one-time yes. purchase thing? Yep. And you say it's like 25 bucks? I got mine on sale. I think it's normally like 50 bucks, but even still, 50 bucks, one-time fee, you're done. That's yeah. that's that. And like I said, Sarah Marino uses it for her eBooks, which look beautiful. So yeah. clearly if she can make it work, it's no worse than what InDesign would be. So just a little yeah. tidbit for those listening to it, save some money. It, and InDesign is not a, it's not a super straightforward software. No. It's very uh, heritage styled where um you know it it's designed more so for you know larger publications and such and so it's not quite as user-friendly um as some of the other stuff that's out there though i will say that when i went to college back in the late 1800s um that that was the software that i was using uh back then so <laughs> so it's, it's something that i'm familiar with but if, if one was starting from scratch yeah it would be expensive and it would probably be a little frustrating to learn how to use I used it a little bit when I was doing um, uh, newspaper stuff for one of the colleges, the college newspaper. I was doing a little bit of editing for there and, yeah, trying to learn it. And we were using it very basically, but even still, there's so much stuff that was just like, why is it like this? Yeah. Yeah, simple things such as, you know, here's a rectangle. I'm going to put a picture in it, but then I have to try to fit this picture in there, and there's all the different ways of it not working quite right and then linking yeah. files and yeah it's made for bigger projects um but but yeah it's good to know that there's some options out there that are um very reasonably priced by comparison yeah but yeah but going back to that zine versus ebook thing um yeah i just i would love something that you can hold in your hand and i feel as though a lot of people would pay more for that because of just that tactile nature. Yeah. Well, there's just something about that that people are more apt to pay more for, I think. But then you, like we were talking about before, you get into the environmental aspect of it, which clearly has been on my mind quite a bit since we talked about it. Yeah. Um, And I just think, I don't know if I really... To me, a book is one thing. Like a 15-year retrospective or like a full collection like what you did with Kozu, 
that that's one thing but a little zine that's it's almost like magazines like magazines are pretty much dead to the world they're still out there people still buy them but yeah they're not as prominent as they were and a zine kind of feels like it's being has at least the potential to be replaced completely by an ebook yeah it's it is very interesting and it's it'll it'll be it kind of it it definitely does make you you wonder and that sort of thing with the with the zines you know having something that is physical and tangible on on one hand i think gives it more value than something that's all electronic and also the anticipation of a person kind of waiting for something to arrive in the mail and such and and then also being able to perhaps make it more personal whether it's you know signing it or writing something inside of it um, to make it more personal but it's also something that's not going to last forever and it's something that ultimately you know can just be recycled if it's you know once once things are done um but yeah, e- ebooks are interesting. I it, it's an interesting format. I find that they are very good from a standpoint of educational stuff, um, like the ebooks I've done in terms of teaching stuff. But I haven't seen, and maybe I'm just not very aware of it, but I haven't seen many photographers produce ebooks on projects as much as kind of like what you're describing. Is is that something that you've seen much of? The only one that I know of is again from sarah marino um i forget what hers i think hers was on yosemite um let me see if i can look it up real quick was it was it a a a paid one or was it a free one it was a paid one okay i I do also know that you know in back in the day when i worked at the camera store um, we would do classes there and we learned that you have to charge people for the class, even if it really should be a free class. You have to charge people from the class or they don't show up. And so, you know, you charge them like, you know, $5 for the class. And then when they show up, you give them their $5 back. Um, but if you just offered a free class, then people don't really value it as much. Yeah. I so I do that. see how with the eBooks, you know, if it's something that you're charging for, people will value it more than say just a blog entry or something along those lines where you're perhaps sharing much of the same information. Yeah. Sarah's was on Iceland. It's uh, titled Iceland black and white photography portfolio. And it's an ebook that's 57 pages and features 82 of her images plus a short introductory essay. Um, I think she sells, yeah, she sells it for $8. Okay. So, so I think it's probably about half the price or so, a little less than half the price. I think the reg- the regular, more educational ones are closer to 20, somewhere in that range. Cause I think, yeah, $25 that they're selling for. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, that's, that's actually pretty interesting for sure. It's a format that, like you said, you don't see a lot of photographers doing with that. And it kind of feels weird to, to say, here's a book or an electronic book of my photographs for i don't know ten dollars and you get to see i don't know 10 photographs or whatever plus some writings it just the concept of selling that feels very foreign to me but i think that's mainly because i'm not used to doing it i guess yeah i don't know i i don't know it'll be interesting to see how it turns out yeah and it, it i would think that it would especially with the writing in there it would 
encourage a person to just set everything else aside and just to absorb it in the way that a person would perhaps a more, more of a traditional book um, versus so much other content that's out there where it's just, you know, everything you're just, you know, doom scrolling all day long yeah. photos and, and, and such. But I think, you know, an ebook of that sort of, of project would encourage people just to take their time and just to absorb it in a way. So that, that'll, that'll be very interesting. I, and I, I have some other ebooks planned, but they're more of the educational type, not as much of the projects. See, um, I have, I have a list of ideas on ebooks, which I actually want to talk to you about one after we're done recording here, a little mm -hmm. secret one. Um, Ooh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's one that I think people really like though, once I get it all put together, um, if I get enough traction on it, but yeah, most of mine are kind of project based, but trying to integrate some writings into it that you won't see anywhere else. I mean, I've also thought of like the Brooks Jensen does his, uh, Kokoro series that he puts out for free. Um, I've always liked the idea of doing something like that as well. That's kind of just, especially like with the photographs that don't go into the portfolio of kind of talking about like what didn't make the cut and why, and there's a lot yeah. of potential for something like that. And just setting that out into the world for free as a, and there, there's more learning. I think that comes from that than the photo that did make the cut. Yeah. I, I think we learn more from, you know, why something didn't quite make it. Cause that's, I think there's many more lessons to be learned with that. I hope you enjoyed our creative banter. You can learn more about Cody's work by visiting his website, CodySchultz.com. And you can find my work at BenHorn.com. For further discussion, join us at Patreon.com slash Creative Banter. It's a place where we can interact with you, the listener. And although we greatly appreciate those who contribute by joining a tier, discussions are open to everyone whether you're a paying member or not. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you around next time.